You're listening to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. In this episode, we're continuing a recent session from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia, titled Prescription Drug Overdoses, an American Epidemic. Good afternoon. I'm Len Palazzi from the Division of Unintentional Injury Prevention. I'm going to discuss risk factors for overdose deaths and show you some prevention strategies that derive from them. First, some background on the highest risk demographic groups. Rates of opioid use and overdose death are highest among people in the working years of life and non-Hispanic whites. Poor and rural populations are, in general, more likely to experience prescription overdoses. People who have mental illness are overrepresented among both those using opioids and those overdosing on them. We also know something about the circumstances of use of this type of drugs. There are basically two at-risk populations in the United States. In recent surveys, approximately 9 million Americans report using opioids in the past month. And a little over 5 million report using an opioid non-medically. Non-medical use is that use without a prescription or use for the feeling it causes. Some people, of course, might belong to both groups. We know a little bit about how the non-medical users of opioids are getting the drugs. 76% of them in a recent survey report getting the drugs that had been prescribed to someone else. Only 20% report using drugs that they had gotten from their own doctor. Therefore, some of the people who are going to doctors must be giving or selling or otherwise passing along their drugs to non-medical users. Now, non-medical use is a risk factor for overdose. In states where this has been studied, non-medical users constitute a large fraction of people with fatal opioid overdoses. For example, among the people who died of opioid overdoses, a significant fraction did not have a prescription in their records for the opioid that killed them, one marker of non-medical use. Another sign of non-medical use is patients seeing multiple providers for drugs, a pattern that is known as doctor shopping. In the West Virginia study, one in five of the people dying of overdoses had seen five or more physicians in the past year. In the Ohio study, one out of six people who died had seen an average of five prescribers per year. Now, some of the people who use the drugs medically are also at high risk. And those are the people getting large doses of opioids through legitimate channels. This study focused on the distribution of opioid in a population initiating use of prescription opioids for chronic pain conditions. Compared with people with dosages of less than 20 milligrams per day, people at 20 to 49 milligrams had an odds ratio of 1.4, and the risk increased to people with an odds ratio of death of 8.9 at 100 or more milligrams of opioid per day. In this same study, people with dosages of less than 20 milligrams per day represented the vast majority, or 78.3%, of person years of use. But because of their relatively low risk, they accounted for only 48.9% of the overdoses. By comparison, people getting 50 to 99 milligrams accounted for 5% of usage and 13% of overdoses, and people at 100 milligrams or more were 3% of usage and 24% of overdoses. 
These are what we consider the three most promising overall general strategies. First, improving the effectiveness of prescription drug monitoring programs. These are state programs that track all prescriptions for opioid analgesics and other prescription drugs prone to abuse. Second, use of insurance mechanisms to prevent doctor shopping and to reduce inappropriate use of opioids. Finally, improving state legislation. And I will elaborate on these and other strategies and show how they apply to the high-risk groups. First, improving monitoring and insurance. Users of multiple providers and people at high dosage can be tracked with state prescription monitoring programs because such programs link prescriptions to individual patients, no matter which doctor prescribed them across the state. Medicaid and other insurers should limit the reimbursement of claims for opioid prescriptions to a single doctor and single pharmacy for patients seeing multiple providers. This is especially important because Medicaid and other low-income populations are at high risk. Finally, because long-acting opioids like OxyContin and methadone are frequently used non-medically, insurers can stop paying for any inappropriate use of these drugs, such as their use for short-term pain. Improving legislation and enforcement is another key strategy. Existing laws against doctor shopping need better enforcement. In many parts of the country, for-profit clinics that distribute drugs with minimal medical evaluation of appropriateness are major suppliers to non-medical users. Laws against these pill mills and laws that require physical exams before prescribing might help address the source, as would stopping drug distributions to such clinics by wholesalers. In addition, a variety of other controls on prescription fraud are being employed in some states. For example, 11 states now require that a person picking up abusable drugs show photo identification. It's also important to improve physician practice. Guidelines can educate prescribers about the underappreciated risk and frequently exaggerated benefits of high-dose opioid therapy. Guidelines are especially needed for emergency departments, since high-risk people frequently visit EDs seeking drugs. Guidelines will be more effective if there's built-in accountability for physician behavior via health system or payer reviews. Experts at a recent SAMHSA methadone mortality conference recommended requiring that physicians demonstrate competency in the safe prescribing of methadone, which is responsible for a disproportionate share of overdoses. And finally, use of single-copy, serialized, tamper-resistant paper prescription forms has been shown effective in reducing prescription fraud in the past. The same effect might come from use of electronic or e-prescribing. The last category of strategies includes secondary and tertiary prevention measures to improve emergency and long-term treatment. Overdose harm reduction programs emphasize broader distribution of an opioid antidote, naloxone, to people using drugs non-medically that can be used in an emergency by anyone witnessing an overdose. Substance abuse treatment programs reduce the risk of overdose death. Continued efforts are needed to remove barriers to shifting such programs from methadone clinics to office-based care using buprenorphine. Such care can be less stigmatizing and more accessible to the rural populations. All these strategies need further evaluation to determine those that are most effective. Let me now turn it over to Gary Franklin. Good afternoon. I'm Gary Franklin, chair of the Washington Agency Medical Directors Group, 
representing all of the public payers in Washington State. It is often a challenge to care for patients with complex chronic pain problems. Our goal in Washington is to provide best practice tools and incentives, not just rules, so you can safely and effectively care for your patients. By the late 1990s, as Dr. Baldwin mentioned earlier, several factors converged that led many states to liberalize laws and regulations regarding opioid prescription for chronic non-cancer pain, including weak science suggesting addiction was not common, lobbying by pain advocacy groups, drug company marketing, and use of opioids for managing malignant pain. Within a couple of years, however, unintentional deaths from opioids began to cross my desk in the Washington Workers' Compensation System. We then more systematically reviewed all deaths in our system and published the first peer-reviewed paper describing these deaths specifically related to prescribed opioids. These numbers are small because they occurred in the workers' compensation population. At the same time, however, a similar trend involving 50 times more patients was evolving in Washington State. Concomitant with the deaths, we also noted a dramatic rise in the average daily morphine-equivalent doses of the most powerful long-acting opioids, such as OxyContin, among injured workers. These doses increased more than 50% within just a few years after the laws became more permissive than stabilized through the mid-1990s. Also by that time, even some pain experts noted that the strength of evidence related to opioid efficacy was weak regarding longer-term use, for example, while pain may improve modestly in the short term, function may not improve substantially at all. Some patients even develop worse pain or hyperalgesia. Dr. Jane Valentine, a prominent expert in the area, also first suggested that patients may be developing severe tolerance and that treating tolerance by continuing to increase the opioid dose should be questioned. More recently, she had stated publicly that she believes that 100% of patients on chronic opioid therapy are dependent. In a prospective population-based study of injured workers that we published with compensable low back pain, more than one-third received an opioid early on, most at the first visit. This is contrary to most published guidelines. Among the 6% who went on to receive opioids for chronic pain for one year, the vast majority did not report clinically meaningful improvement in pain and function but their opioid doses rose significantly. Washington State has aggressively moved forward to address this issue with the four strategies listed here. I'll talk about each of these individually. The first strategy is opioid dosing guidelines. The agency medical directors group called together a panel of 15 high-level clinical and academic pain experts to advise us on potential prevention efforts. At the beginning of the very first meeting, one pain expert suggested that the vast majority of his patients with chronic non-malignant pain did not require more than the equivalent of 90 milligrams per day of morphine. Prior to this time, there was no dosing guidance whatsoever in national guidelines. And peer-reviewed publications, such as the group health study mentioned previously, had not yet been published. The advisory panel agreed on a yellow flag warning dose of 120 milligrams per day of morphine, and suggested an educational guideline should be disseminated as a pilot, not as policy. The guideline emphasized a dosing yellow flag of 120 milligrams per day, morphine equivalent, for incident or new patients with chronic pain. 
If such a patient's dose escalated to 120 milligrams and pain and function had not substantially improved, then take a deep breath and either ask for help, say from a pain consultation, or hold the line or taper the dose. We realized that in 2006, specific dosing guidance was a totally new concept, likely to be criticized, so we did not focus on the patients already on high doses of opioids at that time, but rather on preventing morbidity and mortality among newer cohorts of patients. The guideline was introduced in April of 2007 as a web-based tool, including two hours of free CME and specific best practice guidance, use of an opioid treatment agreement, for example, and judicious use of random urine drug screening. Tracking pain and function is crucial to recognizing important degrees of tolerance during dose escalation. We conducted a survey of primary care doctors about one and a half years after the guideline was introduced to assess overall concerns, acceptance of dosing guidance, and to identify gaps in knowledge for which tools could be added to an updated guideline. 86% of responding primary care doctors thought the 120 milligram yellow flag warning dose was perfect. Even after 10 years or more of permissive prescribing, we were surprised to see that a majority of prescribers surveyed were very concerned still. This bolstered the need to offer more practical tools. We also discovered that the majority of doctors are not using all best practices, likely due to not having brief usable tools or even adequate incentives. For example, only 38% were using random urine drug screens, often or always, and 69% never or almost never tracked physical function. These brief open source tools were added to the June 2010 update of our guideline for ease of incorporation into routine practice. One good example is the two-question graded chronic pain scale for tracking pain and function. With this type of tool, along with a web-based opioid dosing calculator, you can more easily identify if significant and potentially dangerous tolerance is developing in your patients. We believe the guidelines have already had an impact on substantially reducing the higher doses of the most potent long-acting opioids in our workers' compensation system. And although very preliminary, it does appear that both mortality and morbidity statewide may have moderated in 2009, two years after guideline implementation. Our second strategy is legislation. The Washington legislature passed legislation in March 2010 that will repeal the currently permissive rules by June 2011 and will implement new rules largely reflective of the dosing, guidance, and other best practices emphasized in the guidelines. The lead sponsor, Representative Jim Mueller, is an addiction counselor who inherited many patients on very high doses of opioids when a pill mill in Vancouver, Washington was shut down by the DEA. He had never previously seen these types of doses in his HMO practice and became convinced that a new standard embodying best practices was needed. Besides the specific dosing guidance, all of the best practices in the new rules are in common across all recently published opioid guidelines. There is some evidence of effectiveness, for example, of treatment agreements combined with urine drug screens. The third strategy, and I know this is important to you, is improving physician access to pain specialists. Although most patients with chronic pain are seen by primary care providers, we recommend that those doctors seek specialist help when patients reach certain dosage levels. 
and there are substantial issues regarding low availability of such pain specialists who are not often available to consult on complex opioid issues. We are addressing this by developing specific methods for offering pain proficiency training for primary care prescribers who may then become mentors or consultants to their colleagues, particularly in rural areas. In addition, we are developing payment incentives to make pain consultations with specialists more efficient via innovative means, such as telephone and video consultation. Our final strategy is community-based treatment of chronic pain. As opioid dosing moderates, primary care doctors are telling us they need alternatives for the effective treatment of chronic pain. We are in the early development phase of determining which best practices and quality indicators of best practice could be effectively implemented in community-based primary care settings. These elements could be developed in concert with evolving concepts, such as accountable care organizations and medical homes, such as for chronic pain, as for other chronic diseases. We believe a tipping point on dosing has occurred from the guidelines that we released and our other efforts. The overall problem is related to high doses and rampant tolerance. Dosing guidance and routine use of best practices can address this problem. A more comprehensive approach to effectively treating chronic pain must be developed, likely through more integrated community-based pain services. Finally, prescriber education alone will not be adequate to address extreme prescribing outliers, inappropriate office dispensing or societal issues uh, not under provider influence. Let me now turn it over to Gil Kurlikowski. We'll return for more from this session of Grand Rounds Nation after a short break. <laughs>